So uh, before we dive right in and look at the contents, uh, we'll go through an outline quickly. So paragraph one of chapter five is a definition of the doctrine of providence. Uh, it's going to be more broad than what you might expect, uh, but we'll go into detail. And then paragraph two is explaining how providence relates to the decrees, which was um, the pre or it was chapter three, which I believe Pastor Rob taught on. Um, so we'll see how providence relates to the decrees, um, how God uses providence to bring about uh, the decrees. Um, in paragraph three, we'll see how uh, God uses means in providence. He doesn't just snap his fingers and make everything happen at once. He uses means. He uses creatures, us, uh, the world, um, and time and space. And then paragraphs four through six explain the ends, the purposes of providence. And then paragraph seven is the final paragraph. It describes how providence is ordered for the church after Christ. Um, now, we might think of providence as a very basic doctrine. It's God does everything for his glory and our good. And that is true. The doctrine, that, that explanation is here in the confession. But uh, there's a lot more philosophical terms used in the confession that we need to look at. Uh, it'll help us understand providence more broadly to help, help us understand providence in relation to other doctrines, not just a doctrine on its own. So beginning with paragraph one. Uh, The framers wrote, God, the good creator of all things, in his infinite power and wisdom, does uphold, direct, dispose, and govern all creatures and things, from the greatest even to the least, by his most wise and holy providence, to the end for which they were created, according to his infallible foreknowledge, and the free and immutable counsel of his own will, to the praise of the glory of his wisdom, power, justice, infinite goodness, and mercy. So again, this is introducing us to the doctrine of providence. Uh, Providence comes from two Latin terms, pro video, so that's foresight, to see something beforehand. Um, That is the the technical definition of providence, but obviously um, the, the general doctrine is explained as Uh, what God does for all creatures from the greatest to the least for his ends. Um, The classic understanding, God does all things for his glory and our good. That is the end of providence, and we're going to see that in much more detail uh, in later paragraphs. Uh, God, the good creator, so when the framers use that, they're emphasizing God's goodness. They begin the paragraph, the, the chapter of providence, with God's goodness. So goodness is the key attribute in relation to providence, as well as infinite, his infinite wisdom and his power. Um, so basically, God is not contingent on us. He creates and sustain the world, sustains the world by his goodness and wisdom. They also explain that it, providence is, it extends to all creatures from the greatest to the least. So providence is general. Now, as I said, the last paragraph explains how providence relates to the church specifically, but providence extends to all creatures, um, and, and God uses all creatures in his providence to bring about his will. Again, they also say, to the end for which they were created, to the praise of God's glory. So here we get an idea of the telos of creation, the purpose um, of providence in time. Um, and they're going to use the word end or end several times, and we'll, we'll go into that as well. 
Some key scriptures related to uh, this paragraph, Isaiah 46, 9 through 11. I am God, and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose, calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my counsel from a far country. I have spoken and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed and I will do it. So <clears throat> here we, we see a very clear picture of how God uses creation. He uses all things to bring about his counsel. Um, all his purposes, all his purpose will, will come about. Uh, he has spoken, he has promised, and he will bring those things to pass. It might not fall out according to our own view, our own ideas of how he might achieve those things, but he will do it. That's because God is, is perfect. He is, he is good within himself. And then another key, key passage, uh, Pastor Nathan preached through Ephesians a few years ago, and he emphasized this um, in Providence, but in him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. So there isn't one thing in time or space that happens that is not according to the purpose of God. So when we're going through suffering, those things God even uses in his greater plan. Um, and that plan is ultimately for our good. And it might not seem like it at the time, but he has promised in his word that that is um, how he has ordered things. Moving along to paragraph 2, uh, they state, Although in relation to the foreknowledge and decree of God, the first cause, all things come to pass immutably and infallibly, so that there is not anything befalls by chance, befalls any by chance, or without his providence. Yet by the same providence, he ordered them to fall out according to the nature of second causes, either necessarily, freely, or contingently. So here's where we're going to get into the deeper philosophical language. Um, so we have the ideas of, of causality here. These are a little bit hard to wrap our minds around, but it's important in understanding how God works in the world, whether or not he is dependent on us to achieve his means, or if he does so out of his goodness. So the Catechism, in question 11, says, how does God execute his decrees? Any takers? Anyone been uh, memorizing their Baptist Catechism? Cody? <laughs> That's right. God, work, God executes his decrees in the works of creation and providence. So we've already, last week, we went through the creation of providence in the confession. Well, he works out his decrees through both creation and providence. We have to understand the two together. God's decree in eternity, it comes to pass in time by creating the world, creation, and directing creation in time toward its ordained end, the purpose for which God created the world. And that's where we get the idea that creation and providence are how God brings about his decrees. Uh, Sam Renahan states, God in his providence preserves, guides, and governs all that he created for his own glory and for the good of his elect. This providence is the development of God's decrees, not a, not a succession of actions on God's part. Providence describes the unfolding of his decree according to his sovereignty, from beginning to end. The purposes of God in his universal decree are fulfilled through providence, 
yet we can distinguish the decree if we consider the execution or unfolding of it according to providence, and thus we speak of creation, redemption, and consummation. So we can understand creation in terms of, of different stages of creation, because obviously we have new creation and the new covenant. Um, but, but what he's saying here is that we can't separate creation from providence and, and how God brings about uh, his will. Well, the confession says, uh, God ordered them, that's all things, God ordered all things to fall out according to the nature of second causes. So this is where we're going to get into uh, the language of causality. Um, we can't really escape talking about philosophy and the confession because they use the terms first cause and second cause. Um, as much as we might want to just avoid talking about it, it's important. So primary causality. Primary causality is God's causality. So God is the primary cause of all things, which is to say he is the source and cause of all beings. He gives everything the ability to cause. He gives everything being itself. And then we have secondary causality. So God uses things. God causes things to fall out according to second causes. That's to say we have creaturely causality or material causality. So created beings, humans, even animals, they have uh, the ability to act in the world because God has given them the ability to cause. Um, and we can't, really, we can't cause God at all. We can't impose our own will upon God. But rather, he gives us a will so that we in creation interact with one another. Things within time and space interact. And ultimately, God will, do, will use those things as a means for his ends. Some, some key scriptures um, on causality and and providence in relation to God's decrees. So Proverbs chapter 16, verse 33. The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. So even just rolling a die, even that is, is ordained by the Lord. Whatever numbers will fall out, those numbers God has decreed. Um, it's, it's really incredible when you think about everything we think of as happening by chance or just a random occurrence, a coincidence. We can use that language, but it's really, it kind of deceives us from understanding um, how God ordains all things to happen. In Acts 2.23, we get a beautiful picture of how God uses second causes to cause, uh, to bring about his, his cause of salvation. So Acts 2.23, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan of foreknowledge of God you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. So even the worst case of injustice in the world, God, the Son of God dying, he was perfect, he was innocent, and yet he died by the hands of sinful men. Even that was by the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. God uses even evil acts to bring about his will. And that's because he is so good and so great that he can turn good from evil. Isn't that good too? How they, they're the ones who are accountable. Yeah. They're responsible. Yeah, there's no injustice to God's justice. There's, he does no harm to their own will either, but yeah, he is, he's not responsible for that. But he has decreed that uh, he would send his son for our salvation. Ultimately because he has decreed that we would have communion with him. And that was necessary. But yeah, he's not, he's not responsible for that. And later in the confession, we'll, we'll see how man's will relates to God's sovereignty and how 
Um, is God to blame for for the sinful acts of men if He's decreed all things? Even this chapter, or even this this uh, this chapter of the confession is going to get into that some. Right? Yeah, you can't say, "Well, I, I'll just go sin because God decreed it." I mean, that's that's not biblical. That's it's not logical with understanding um, how God uses second second causes. Well, paragraph three goes on. God, in His ordinary providence makes use of means, yet is free to work without, above, and against them at his pleasure. So here we see this. We saw this in the prior paragraph as well, but we see it in these two paragraphs. Because God is outside of time and space, he created all things. He makes use of creation to bring about his decree for creation. So when he created, he didn't create just without a plan. He created for a purpose. And this is to bring about a certain end, a certain telos. And um, again, that telos was, as we saw in the, the chapter on the decrees of God, it was ultimately for our communion with him. Uh, he has decreed all things um, for that end. God uses secondary causes as a means to the end. So just saw how the confession uses the idea of second causes. Well, here we see that the means that God uses are those second causes. Um, I know this is very heady stuff, but again, the, as we go through the confession, it, it builds upon this and it uses clearer language to, to really apply this idea. He, sorry, God's decree is the end and purpose of and for creation. And yet, the confession says that he is free to work without, above, and against his means, at his pleasure. So, we see that God is not bound to such means. He uses such means, but he's not bound to them. He is free to work without them. He can work above them, and even against them at his pleasure. And we can think of things such as the, the laws of nature. How can we grasp the laws of nature and miracles, for instance? Well, God is free to work in any way he desires. Um, so when we read about the miracles in the New Testament... That's not a contradiction of, of laws of nature. That's God bringing about his will in creation. Uh, he is free to supersede those any time he desires. Yeah, yeah, we're going to get into that. They, they don't use that, that terminology, but yeah, the, they're very concerned with that because at this time, this is kind of the beginning of the Enlightenment, and you have this idea that God created the world, and, and he just stepped away from it. So, yeah, the watchmaker, he's... He wound up the world, and he just let it play out, and the end. That's that's not that's not the idea we get from creation or from scripture about creation. So, and um, Genesis fifty twenty. Uh, this is speaking of jo- this is Joseph speaking to his brothers. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive, as they are today. So just as an acts. Um, the preaching in Acts, we see that God uses even evil means to bring about a good end, uh, a perfect end. Uh, this, is, this is really encouraging when, when we're suffering. Um, when, maybe when, when you're being persecuted. Uh, we don't really face persecution, but when someone does a wrong against you, we can rely on God's promises that God means everything for your good if you are trusting in Christ. Um, and even our sufferings, our, our sicknesses, when we face death, this is a great, a great comfort.
Now this is a Rube Goldberg machine. You've probably seen this as a kid, maybe made them before. They're really fun. You basically set up some type of uh, collection of cause and effects. So maybe some dominoes fall, they hit an axe, the axe cuts a string, it causes something to fall, and it keeps going. It's just for fun. Um, it's not a perfect picture of how creation is because, again, we want to guard ourselves from, from something like God created the world and then just stepped away from it. But it can help us see how God sets up all things and they fall out according to his will. It's not, it's not a perfect image, um, but when God creates the world, there's things that will happen that um, ultimately it, it, all, it all works out perfectly. When we create a machine like this, we're probably going to have to try five or six times. God does it, and it's perfect. It happens exactly how he has planned. Um, now we have time for questions. In relation to the, the Rube Goldberg machine, what are some ways that can be helpful, and what are some ways maybe that can be a bad image of, of how God uses means? Yeah, Casey. Yeah, I think it's like just what you were already kind of alluding to, which is that in the machine, once it's started, it kind of just goes off by itself. Mm -hmm. Versus like scripture's depiction of God is much more like intimately involved. With yeah. The, with just how the world works. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, Kim. Yeah, I was gonna say I thought it was a comfort because uh, even though that picture kind of looked like various things. Or, mm -hmm. Yeah. Things are playing out, and some things maybe don't seem to make sense. Mm -hmm. Having that picture and that reminder that yes, God is the first cause of all things. He orchestrated these things. Yeah. Um, just kind of like we were going through in Daniel, we, mm -hmm. we may not understand everything that's going on, and, and we would be disheartened. But to take a step back and realize that God is sovereign, He is over all of these things. Yeah. He is mindful and involved, not just sitting back and watching. Yeah. Yeah, he's intentional about every everything he places in creation. He's very intentional about it to bring about his perfect plan. Yeah, it is a comfort. I like how you started with saying that God is good mm -hmm. and that we know that we can trust him and who he is yeah. and that he is immutable and that he, mm -hmm. is, he is good and that yeah. he is for his people. Mm -hmm. And when we do encounter hard, uh, even maybe evil things mm -hmm. from others and from the world that we live in, yeah. That God means these things for our good mm -hmm. to cause us to depend upon Him and even to seek His face. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. Cody, were you going to say something? Casey said it all. Okay. <laughs> yeah, and we, we already discussed it. Um, one issue with this is yeah, just God, He didn't just create everything and step away, He did it all intentionally. Uh, that's, I think that's a kind of a picture we get with this. Um, and that's, that's contrary to the ideas of deism, which Pastor Rob mentioned. Um, we also, one issue we might have with this is that, yeah, God, uh, when he created us, he gave us wills. He gave us souls with a will. So we do make decisions. Those objects, they don't make decisions. They just fall out once one falls after the other. Uh, so that might be one way it falls short. Um, and he doesn't just create things for fun. He creates out of his goodness, and as you reminded us, that's, that's how this chapter starts, is that he does it all out of goodness. When we do one of these, we do it for some, for just fun, for 
hey kids, let's do this. This will be fun to just try to get this to work and make all the dominoes fall correctly. And it'll take several tries and we might get mad. But that's, that's not the picture we get of God. Um, that's not who God is. But again, this can be helpful because God has ordered all things good and uh, perfectly. Yeah, yeah, I mean, when God creates all things, he doesn't step away. He governs all things. He directs all things. So even as, as for instance, sinful leaders in the world make decisions contrary to God's revealed will, will he's still governing the world. Uh, we have that promise in Scripture. Um, and the confession, um, yeah, I didn't say anything about that on the slides, but the confession speaks of God um, governing and directing all things. Um, the catechism does as well. So that even when Christians are being persecuted by evil leaders, God is still governing the world. Um, his promise has not failed. Uh, and as time goes on, his, his governance remains perfect, no matter what the future might look like. It, personally, I have a pessimistic view of the future, but I know that God is he's in control. He's the good governor of all creation. Um, so, yeah. Well, I like how you said that this world is not all there is either. This yeah. is, there's an end goal, and mm-hmm. that end, that telos of yeah. where things are headed, that, uh, that glorious aspect of yeah. his people being with him mm-hmm. forever. Yeah, yeah, and the last paragraph is going to get into that. For our good. For our good. Yeah. For his glory. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I was going to say, with that picture, too, sometimes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Romans nine, the God chooses the vessels um, to bring about His His purposes, um, and He can use vessels of of mercy and vessels of wrath for those things. Um, he's the potter, we're the clay, and. Yeah, when we look at things, I mean, Israel looked at the Gentiles as, why would God use those evil, dirty people? And Romans 9, Paul, that's what he explains, is that your, your view of God in the world is um, you're forgetting how God is sovereign and he is providential. Yeah. So, so did you mean, Chandler, that when it starts out, we're, we're, sometimes we get punched because of life, but in the end it works out, and eventually we will see the light? Yeah, well, I didn't mean that, but providentially, I would say, yes, God, God meant that, yes. Yeah, yeah, we definitely get punched in the gut several times in life, but again, that is all for our good and for God's glory, so. Moving along, um, we're kind of going to do an overview of paragraphs four through six. These paragraphs are very long, so we don't have the time to go into them in detail, but I want to highlight a few key things from these paragraphs, so uh, just to a brief um, summary statement of each one. Paragraph four um, is a summary of how God is not the author or approver of sin. So what we were just talking about. Uh, Paragraph five is God appoints all things for his glory and our good. So going more into detail about that. And paragraph six uh, is an explanation of how uh, sinful men have their hearts hardened uh, by God. And yet there's no harm to to their will, but God uses that as even a means in providence. So, we're just speaking of, of the telos of creation, the end of creation. Um, before we 
look at how the confession uses that even more, we need to understand teleology. Again, more philosophy, but it's helpful and it's necessary. Um, teleology is the study of, of ends or things telos. Um, it is, you can think of a telos as a goal, a purpose to act, or an endpoint. So something becoming what it was made to be. So the telos of mankind is to become what God has designed us to be, or creation. Um, so the telos of the garden, for instance. What was the garden supposed to be? That was the telos of the garden um, to grow, to expand, uh, to, for man to use to expand the garden to cover the whole earth. That was its telos, to be a, a temple of the Lord. Obviously, that, that failed, but in the new creation, that will come about. Its telos will uh, come about. Um, if you have kids, you probably know a, a, three, a two- or three-year-old's favorite question is, why? Even children are, are um, they love the idea of teleology. They want to know why you're doing something. Why that? Why this? That's, that's their favorite question. Um, and even as, as humans, we, we ask why all the time when we face things. Um, so I think everyone is concerned with teleology, whether they, they use that language or not. We're all concerned with, with why. Why we don't do things purposely, or at least we shouldn't. So we discussed primary cause, which is God. We discussed second causes, which is how creatures have cause, causality. Well, there's a third type of cause, and that is um, the confession uses this language. Or it doesn't use it, but um, it speaks of final causes. A final cause is a cause of bringing something to its ordained end. This is different from the primary cause. Um, the primary cause is God, so he has given cause to all things. The final cause is how he has ordered all things towards an end. So again, just to, to summarize, reiterate, primary cause is God. Second causes are creaturely causes, how we act. And the final cause is the purpose or telos given to anything. Uh, the Westminster Confession gives us a great, or not the confession, the catechism, gives us a great answer to what is the chief end, what is the chief telos of man. The chief end, telos, final cause of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. So even the, the, the Reformed catechisms begin with the idea of, of the telos of man. This is, not, um, this is not some alien philosophical term that we can just throw out. Uh, this is, it's embedded in, in our theology. So this chart might be helpful in, in understanding the causes and how God uses means. So God is the primary cause. He's the first cause. But from all eternity, he has decreed a final cause. Now, he doesn't just snap his fingers. He doesn't have fingers, first of all. But he doesn't just make all things happen in an instant. It, it doesn't just, God doesn't have a picture in mind, and then he just makes it happen at once. He uses second causes. Um, and those second causes happen through creation and providence. Or in other words, he uses means in space and time uh, to bring about uh, his, his purpose for creation. Um, this chart isn't perfect, uh, but hopefully it can help connect the concepts of causality and using the language of the confession, first cause, second cause, uh, the use of means, God's decree. Uh, this is all tied together. This, 
This is systematic in the confession, although it might not be, um, might not be easy for us to, to draw it out. So now moving back, focusing back on what the confession says, paragraph 4 addresses the uh, problem of sin and evil in the world in relation to God's providence. If God is good and sovereign over creation and providence, does that mean he's responsible for sin and evil that occurs? If he's decreed that all these things will fall out, is he the author of sin? Does he create sin? Well, they give us an answer. God's power, wisdom, and goodness so far manifest themselves in his providence and all other sinful actions, both of angels and men, and that not by a bare permission, to his most holy ends. So no, God is not um, the author of sin. In fact, they believe that God was so good and powerful and wise that God can use even sinful acts of men in providence for ultimate good. Not by merely allowing sin to occur, but by making good to result, even through sin, suffering, sorrows, trials. And I think it's interesting in church history, there have been many who believed that the problem of evil, you know, if, if there's a good God, why can there be evil things that happen in the world? I actually think that's a, a good proof of God, because only a good God can make good to occur out of that. If there's no God, if there's just cosmos and our ideas of evil don't matter, just by thinking about things in terms of good and evil, if there's a good God, how can there be evil? Is um, you're, you're denying, your, your idea of God is twisted, and you're relying on God's own uh, laws of morality to, to make that argument. And again, God is so good that he can turn evil into good. Um, and we see that in Christ most specifically. The, the most heinous act ever committed turned into the most glorious act for man and, and creation ever. So um, their answer to, to this is no. No, God is not the author or reprover of sin. Tying it back to providence, um, when God brings about his decree, his most holy ends, as the confession says, God will use all things for our good and his glory in due time in providence. Um, I, I was reminded this past Wednesday evening, Pastor Nathan was, uh, he preached, he gave a devotional on 2 Corinthians 1, verses 1 to 7, and he's preaching on the God of all comforts, and something that I think was uh, really stuck with me in relation to providence was that when we suffer, um, whether it's, it's evils done to us, or, or sorrows, or sickness, or death, uh, facing death in our family, for instance, we don't know why God allows that suffering to happen. Um, but in Providence, Pastor Nathan pointed out that in Providence, sometimes we go through suffering so that we can encourage others when they're suffering. We can't make sense of suffering when it happens to us, but uh, sometimes, as John Flavel has said, Providence can only be read backwards. Um, it, or he said it was like the Hebrew alphabet or the, he, the Hebrew scriptures. Providence can only be read backwards. Um, and so when we're suffering... At the time, it, there's, sometimes it doesn't make sense to even think, why am I suffering now? Sometimes we won't know until later, until we're encouraging others, and we realize, I wouldn't be able to encourage this person the same way if I hadn't suffered in a similar manner. Um, and that's just one way God can use suffering in providence. Well, going on, um, that's Augustine, by the way. He was 
probably one of the greatest thinkers in history on the problem of evil. Um, obviously a Christian theologian. He addressed it in a particular way different than uh, Greek philosophers. Um, but the confession, building off of this Augustinian tradition, yes, uh, the confession goes on. The sinfulness of man's acts proceeds only from the creatures and not from God, who being most holy and righteous, neither is nor can be the author or approver of sin. So, um, and they, they rely on various verses for this. 1 John 2.16, for instance. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. In Scripture, there is no contradiction between God creating the world, creating all things, and being sovereign over the world, and man doing evil. Um, that is not a contradiction in the, the biblical um, view of God, the biblical view of providence. There's, allowing sin and evil is not the same as being responsible for it. Um, and, and later on, I believe chapter 9 of the Confession uh, is going to speak on, on man's free will in relation to God's sovereignty. And they'll, they will go into further detail on this. Yep, chapter 9. So, uh, explaining how, uh, how can God predestine things, and just classic Calvinism, basically. Um, because Arminians will argue, well, if God predestined all things, then he must be responsible for sin. Why do you need to do, do good? Why do you need to follow his law if God's predestined it anyway that you're going to sin? Um, now the... Oh, go ahead. I was going to say, that, that it goes into his decree of will and his yeah. revealed, revealed will. will. Right? The, yeah. That which he's revealed, uh, good, right, justice, holy law, and mm-hmm. the secret will of God that Deuteronomy 29, yeah. 29, we don't, we don't know what that is, but we mm-hmm. know what he's revealed and what he's called yeah. us to do. Yeah, what, Acts chapter 2 and 4 are mm-hmm. so helpful oh, to yeah. think about um, the wickedness of men in relation to a truly righteous and yeah. innocent person, mm-hmm. and yet God is working all these things for his purposes and our good. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. Well, the confession will go on. Um, they've They've kind of addressed the problem of sin. Now they're going to deal with, with the relation of providence in our own sin as Christians, our own sin and suffering. Why does God allow his own children to suffer and be tempted to sin? Why, why doesn't he just bring it into that instantly? Well, the confession in that paragraph gives us uh, various reasons, I believe five reasons. So the first is to chastise them to form, for former sins. Um, Hebrews 12.6, For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. And also Revelation 3.19, Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline to be zealous and repent. And we also see this throughout Proverbs as well. well. The second reason they give on why God allows us to suffer and be tempted is to show his, his children, his church, the hidden strength and of corruption and de- deceitfulness of their hearts. Um, we would be greatly deceived if we believe that once we're Christian, we are holy. We are perfect, right? Well, we are holy, but we are perfectly holy right away, that we are uh, sinless once we believe. And there are traditions in the Christian faith that believe that, um, wrongly so. The third reason they give is that his children may be humbled. This is related to the, the second reason, um, but 
but suffering and, and sin reminds us of our limits in this present passing age and helps us to look forward to the age to come when suffering will be brought to an end, when we will no longer have the ability to sin. Fourth reason is to bring them to a more close and constant dependence on God. We're often closest to God when we're facing the greatest of sufferings. That is a fact of the Christian life that I'm sure all of you are aware of and have experienced. And the fifth reason they give is to make them more watchful against all future occasions of sin. When our sins are exposed by the light of Christ, the light of the gospel, we're sanctified and we're better better prepared to fight that sin, to kill that sin uh, in the future. And six, they they give they say for other just and holy ends, so they don't limit it to those those purposes. Um, but those are five very explicit biblical reasons of why God disciplines us, why God disciplines us when we suffer, when we sin, when we're tempted. Um, and again, all, it's rooted in God's goodness, His love for us. His love, after all, is why He created the world and why He sustains us and governs the world. And uh, they finish the paragraph, so that whatsoever befalls any of his elect is by his appointment for his glory and their good. Well, um, I'm not going to go through paragraph six. Um, that's going to be covered in great detail uh, in, in the later chapters on, on man's free will. Uh, just for purposes of time this morning, we're going to jump to the last paragraph. Uh, paragraph seven is on how providence extends primarily to the church. It says, As the providence of God doth in general reach to all creatures, so after a most special manner, it taketh care of his church and disposeth all things to the good thereof. They make explicit here that providence is for the good of his elect uh, in a special way that, although, as it said previously, it extends to all creatures from the greatest to the least, it extends to the church most specially. Providence is general, again, extends to all, but its end is for the church's good. Key scriptures they rely on are 1 Timothy 4.10. It says, For to this end we toil and strive, because we have our hope set on the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. In Romans 8.28 also a great comfort in relation to this. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to His purpose. These are a great comfort in, uh, as the church suffers, as individual Christians within the church suffer, but also as the church at large suffers. Um, some more verses that might be comforting. 1 Peter 5.10 And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. That promise isn't for non-believers in the world, that in providence, God doesn't do those things for for them. He does those things for us, for the church. James 1.12, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. So as we're tested, as our faith is tested, as we have doubts, we can rejoice in those times knowing that God is using this for our edification, for our sanctification, 
that ultimately we will receive the prize of communion with God at the end. And another place in James, James 1, verses 3 and 4. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And again, we, uh, we read Genesis 50, verse 20 earlier, but how God uses uh, even the sinful acts of men. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Now, what was true about Joseph in that time is even truer about Christ. Though Christ died at the hands of wicked men, God meant it for good. And just as the verse says, God meant it for good so that many should be kept alive. Not just kept alive, but have everlasting life in Christ. And we have that promise today that when we die, which is a great, the greatest suffering we have on this earth, at that point we will be brought to God in eternal life. And just to tie it all together, to tie it back to Christ... Christ was the perfect example. Again, Acts 2.23. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God used this, this great act of wickedness, of evil, for the greatest act to occur in history. For his glory, for our good. It was so that we might be brought to God and communion with him. Providence ultimately culminated in Christ's person and work. The end of creation was brought about at the cross. When Christ said, it is finished, he was bringing that purpose of creation, he was bringing a beginning to that end in ultimate terms. He said, it is finished. That, that very word there is this, related to the same Greek word for the telos of, of things. Um, in other words, when Christ uh, suffered on the cross when he died, he was bringing about the end, the purpose of creation there. Uh, and that's a great comfort because that was the greatest suffering that anybody could, uh, could face, and yet it was used for our good. It was used for, for the, the bringing about of creation's telos. Uh, again, John Flavel said, If we could but see the hand of God in all the events of our lives, we would find that the worst things that ever happened to us would prove to be the best things that ever happened to us. And just so it is in Christ. Christ suffered the worst wrong, and yet it turned out to be the greatest thing that we could ever, that could ever happen to mankind. Providence, uh, we often think of providence in terms of, of physical providential occurrences, and that is definitely true, but providence is always a spiritual blessing to God's people. So we might think of, oh wow, I ran into this fellow Christian at the store the other day. Well, that's providential, but not just in a physical sense that, oh, wow, we ran into each other. But there's a great spiritual blessing in, in God's providence that, um, that when other Christians meet each other, they, there's a meeting of God's people there. And that is, uh, God promises um, that in his providence, all acts are for the good of his people. So even small things like that are not just for our physical blessing, but for spiritual blessing. Um, the very shape of, of time and space in providence is shaped like Christ, and so it is shaped like his church because we are in him. And that is um, a great encouragement as we face um, an uncertain future. 
what, what does tomorrow hold? We don't know, but, but God is providential, and he will bring his ends uh, to pass. And um, just as, uh, as a final encouragement, we're facing uh, trials and providence. We're told in Scripture, Rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Well, that's all we have time for this morning. Um, I would have loved to go through chapter or for, through paragraph 6 in more detail, but again, we're going to return to that later in the confession. Um, but before we, we close this teaching hour, are there any final questions? Again, I know this was a lot of, of philosophical um, language use that you probably wouldn't expect when talking about providence, but I, I think it's, it's really important for us to understand as we go forward. All right, well, let's uh, close with a word of prayer. Our Father, uh, we thank you for your goodness, your power, your wisdom in creating, upholding, sustaining, and governing all things, especially us, your church. We pray, Lord, that the promises of your providence would um, be true today as we gather to worship you. That you would be present among us in a special way that this meeting itself would be a providential uh, meeting of, of your presence as, as we gather to worship your name, to hear your word proclaimed, as you have promised in the scriptures, um, that all things work out for our good. And, and even beginning our week with the Lord's Day, there is a providential ordering to time that, that we experience today, that we begin our week with worshiping you. Lord, we pray that today that this week would uh, be providential for us, that you would use us for your glory, that you would turn our, our sorrows, our sufferings to our good. And ultimately, Lord, we look forward to the last day when this will all be brought uh, in its final culmination in Christ and the new creation. Lord, we pray that you'd bless the, uh, the worship this morning, bless our fellowship around the table. Bless the preaching of your word. Pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.